in this great book of Ephesians that we're in, and we continue today in chapter 4, verse 29 through 30, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn there. Look forward today to Paul's teaching on righteousness, righteous and unrighteous words, and uh, there's lots to cover in a short few verses, so let's jump right in this morning, church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Something that is corrupt is rotten. When you take something that is rotten and you mingle it, with something that's healthy, what happens? It spreads the corruption. Church, this is a serious thing that Paul is speaking of. Surely why he's so specific to focus on putting away corrupting talk and putting on speech that builds up and gives grace. Scripture often reminds us about the potency of our words and this is because our words are very powerful they're very impactful on others if we're going to truly live our lives for God's glory we must rightly wield our words if we're going to truly do business with Paul's call that no corrupting talk should come out of our mouths then we need to really start by understanding the power and the depth of corruption that our words create when they're not God-honoring. A few years ago, I was blessed to preach through the book of James. And James had much to say in his letter about our words. And uh, it was a blessing to reflect back on some of that study this week as I prepared to preach and wanted to recall and remind you of a few of the highlights of what James said about these things. In chapter 1 of James, verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's quite an indictment. James uses the word bridle here to describe how we are to steward the tongue in a way um, to really talk about how are we using our words. A bridle is a tool used to control an animal and dictate its direction. So James is trying to emphasize that both control and direction of our tongue, of our words, is a critical part of doing what God has given us in His Word. Living out our faith, putting it to work, needs to happen in an ongoing way in our words to make much of God. James goes so far to say the person who doesn't exercise control or a God-honoring direction with their words is deceived to think that they truly belong to God. Their religion, the use of that word in this context, is true worship and devotion to God is worthless. You probably know, as I do, people who claim to be Christians who think that they're good with God, and yet they're perfectly fine letting curse words flow out of their mouths somehow thinking it's justified 
We should lean in this morning, church. We should lean in to do business with the potency of what God's Word says about these things. Not how do we feel about it. What does God say about these things? That it would convict us and shape us and refine us and take us forward. That we would get to a place where we could see our sin, confess our sin, and then turn from it in a way that honors God. Jesus himself emphasized in Matthew 5.18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Matthew 12.34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christian, our words are not a small matter. They, They testify who we are. They testify who we belong to. They reveal our true character, our true identity with Christ or without Him. To say, I love God, but then to use our mouths to curse others is to be a hypocrite. Do you know that on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable for every word, every word that came out of our mouths? Matthew 12, 36-37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What is your testimony? Surely we need to take more seriously the things that we say. We need to see that while many times we feel no one's hearing this right now, we have to understand, according to Scripture, our words are on record. They're revealing the true true nature, the condition of our hearts. While you might not think it's, it's a big deal to say a few curse words or to gossip a little when it might benefit you, God thinks it's a huge deal. If we've truly been born again, and we now belong to Christ, then we have no excuse to have our mouths spew words that are from the toilet. And not from the spring of living water that is Jesus Christ. If your identity is in Christ, who is your life, then you will not need to satisfy the flesh to cut down others. Some might be thinking, I only only curse, I only cross this line when I'm really mad. And I just draw you back to Paul's words here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. He gives no room for self-justified fits of anger. To truly bridle your tongue means you are honoring the Lord. Not just when things are good, but when things fall apart. Don't be deceived, Christian. The true measure of your character, of your identity, is not when it's propped up with a life that's going well. It's revealed when it's all falling apart. And who are you really when you have no props? When the circumstances are working against you, when you stand there, pure, just you, the depths of your heart and mind, who are you? Let's not miss the opportunity this morning, church, to take some real inventory of our words. So I ask you then, by way of evaluation, have you been lazy with your words? 
that come out of your mouth. Quick to self-justify. To curse or use words that mirror curse words and are more socially acceptable. I mean, what does gosh really mean? Oh my gosh. Like, right? You know, we, under, we all understand what we're really saying. The, these socially acceptable words that mirror curse words are not somehow okay. The heart of the matter is still on display. To slander others or to gossip, is this a practice you indulge in? Slander is to speak lies about someone else. To gossip is to speak truth about someone else with people you shouldn't be sharing it with. To profane the Lord's name by tossing it to and fro. Are you guilty of this? What does that mean? Well, the word profanity, the root word there is profane. It means to take something that is sacred and make it common. And so when we say, Jesus Christ, or oh my God, flippantly, in just a happenstance of life that has just occurred, you're taking the name of God that is holy and sacred and throwing it on the back of this casual situation. You're taking what is sacred and making it common. This is why it's considered blasphemy and sinful to speak the name, the name of the Lord in vain. It's one thing to cry out, Oh God! Because you're truly crying out to God. And it's another thing to have a cockroach scurry and say, Oh my God! That, that is disgraceful. Flippant. Casual. And so it must be put away. And you might be thinking, man, this, this sounds, you know, a little old school, Pastor, really? Shouldn't say, oh my gosh. You know, I told my kids, I say, yeah, you don't need to say that. That, that phrase mirrors something else that's inappropriate. Say, wow. Right? Something shocks you. Just say, wow. That's a better word. Say something different. Sounds kind of old school, Pastor. And, and I would just say, hey, it's because it is. Because God's as old school as you get. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. See, many times we value this progressive thinking. And we need to get away from what's tr- traditional or old school. But much of what's old school is what honors God. It's the, it's the ways He laid down for how things are to be. And if you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to find a group to run with that's not going to think so specifically about these things, well, then you're going to put away a lot of Scripture that speaks specifically about these things. And, and what's funny is society, a lost secular society, even gets it. Uh, one of the places I am reminded of this regularly is when I read parental reviews for shows, movies, or video games. Parents, if you don't know what these are, I don't even know how you're parenting. Because... My job is to lead and love my children so I don't just put them in front of content that I haven't vetted. We need to know. Hey, can I watch this movie? Well, not until I've vetted it to see what's, what, what's going to be presented for, to you for two hours. And in the parental 
review, you have a list of violence, sexuality or romance, substance abuse, language, things that are all sinful. Right? It, the parental review doesn't say, here are the caring things they did. Right? No, it's not how it works. It's, it's things that are not permissible. And what's in the list of language, these layers of language that are defined, and what's always there is uses of the Lord's name in vain. God, Jesus Christ, in ways that are said, not in an honoring way, but in a flippant, profane way. Every one of them listed out. In a secular parental review, just about every place you go, you're going to see it there. Because understood, this is betraying what God has called for. We need to exercise discipline in our homes so that our children grow up to understand just how corrupting sinful words can be. Parents, what are we modeling? Parents, what are we allowing them to be a part of? You need to help them see just how damaging it can be. James makes this point in chapter 3 of his letter, verse 5, James 3, 5. Also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Sometimes we kind of want to make light of words and, and you know, uh, this is not really a big deal. I mean, some of us grew up with the very phrase, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Whoever came up with that is just a fool. Why? Because words are very hurtful. And I don't know what we're trying to teach our kids there, to be flippant or casual with words, to make light of words that we are to be good stewards of our words. They, I would contend after 20 years of counseling that much more of the counseling I do with people has in relationship to do with words than it has to do with physical abuse. Let us take great care, church, to hear the warning of Scripture. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. What we should be teaching our children is that word is set to create a, a forest fire in someone's life. The tongue is a little fire, but when we don't understand it, 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 it rages. It destroys. It corrupts. James goes on to define the reach of the tongue. In verse 6, James 3, 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. See what it's capable of. See its reach. A fire burns things. Now, a fire can be helpful. It can bring comfort. It can be positive, just as our words can be positive and bring comfort and be helpful. But this emphasis to fire is to corrupting words. Highlighting the destructive nature, the corrupting nature of these things. That it burns things that we love to ashes. He continues to say the tongue is a world, a world of unrighteousness. Meaning when the tongue is not tamed and it's not redeemed by the Spirit of God, it's a world of unrighteousness. Think about that. Think about the scope. Things that are this volatile, things that are this prone to damage, we secure, we, we lock them up. You don't let it run rampant. It's, they're caged, they're put away, they're bridled. 
This is the mindset we must have for our tongues. To heed James and Paul's warnings, to be aware of the damage that our words can do, the corruption they bring. Are you aware of it? How volatile it is. God gave you a cage for your tongue. It's your teeth. He also gave you the ability to open that cage as you will. The question is, what are you doing with it? How are you stewarding it? This is James' point as he continues in verse 6, chapter 3. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and setting on fire by hell. The words we say, can, and do have great impact. And in our sin or selfishness or laziness or pride, not only do they damage whatever we aim them at, there's a wake of damage that often they create. James is referencing the unrighteous use of our tongue, the ways we can curse or gossip or slander, be argumentative, see with me just how corrupting our words can be that they tear apart and destroy lives families, schools, businesses churches, communities I mean some of you have witnessed this did you grow up in a family or maybe you've worked in an environment or you've gone to a school or maybe even been part of a church that was loose with their tongue People were quick quick to slander or to gossip or to curse or to tear down others. And these things were not held accountable. They were not dealt with. They were allowed to fester. Do you remember the wake of the hurt and the heartache that the drama, the separation that those words created people's lives? Not only can this affect your own life, your own career, your own family, your own relationships, your own marriage, your own friendships, but it does affect others' lives. Our words matter. The tongue is to be bridled and checked. Because if not, we set on fire the entire course of life. If you're guilty of being hurtful, if you're guilty of being cutting with the things you say or joke about, I pray you would be convicted by God today, the work of the Holy Spirit, to stop. To see it as sin and confess it as sin. To repent and start a new practice. I charged our first hour families to be bold enough to sit down with your loved ones and confess. I have erred here. I've justified this too long. I want to say out loud, I see that this is wrong. And I want to put this away. I want you to see and know a different me. I want you to see me honor the Lord. I want, to see a, I want you to see a new example out of me. Own it. Go on record. Don't play light with it. What a joy it is to know many of your stories are ones of great victory around this topic. It's a joy to have to hear um, or even to have known you before you were saved and the immature, hurtful, outlandish, foul mouth person you were. And like, you're just not that person anymore. 
It's not the way you talk anymore. Praise God. And that's hope for those of you who are still very stuck in this, still very given to it. The power of Christ is enough for you to be done with it, for it to be part of the old man, the old testimony, not the new man in Christ. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Or as Paul says to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3.8, you must put away them all, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put it away. Church, may we see the corruption and destruction of sinful words and not say them. May we get better at closing the cage and shutting it down. Oh, this joke's going to really roll the room and it's corruption. It's not God honoring. So I'm going to stop it. I'm going to put it away. Not for later, but throw it in the trash. Are you seeing this happen in your life? You go to post a really good one and like, this is inappropriate. I shouldn't be blasting this out to every person who knows me. In a circle where people are hamming it up and it's fun and you want to partake and you want to grab the baton and have your turn. Oh, I'm going to be the answer to awake a movement that takes us a different direction. Or be willing to get up and leave and not participate, if that's what it takes. May the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accountability of brothers and sisters of, in Christ in your life give you growing attention to your words. And can I encourage you that when a brother or sister pulls you aside and says, hey, man, you said this. You're not quick to make excuse, defend it. Oh, here's, here's why. No, no, no. Just be quiet. Put the cage on and just listen a little more. Hey, I want to glean what you're seeing here in this that I didn't see. Why? So I can confess it, repent of it, honor God. That we would embrace it, not push it off. That we'd embrace each other in this way. That we'd own it when conviction comes. Turn from it. Turn to words that instead build up. This is Paul's next point. Look back at the verse. Letting no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Church, we are to be known for a wake of grace, a testimony of the grace of God. The work of God that's redeeming and making new. This is what we're to be known for. This is the, the influence we are to have. Instead of corrupting words that tear people down, we're to use words that, that build people up. Have you ever heard the saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Kind of wonder where that comes from. Maybe right here. Scripture is clear time and time again that the presence, words, actions of the body of Christ are to be honoring to God, loving to others, and building up those He puts in our paths. 
The author of Hebrews says it this way, Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage. To encourage is to build up. We should be good at this. But often, we're not. We're busy. We're distracted. We're, we're, we miss our opportunities to encourage regularly. You notice the author says, encourage each other daily as long as it's called today. Just in case you don't get that. Today is today. How often should you be doing this? Daily. Regularly. Are you known for words that encourage that build up. Let me show you how, how guilty we are of missing this. How often you find yourself in a situation where you're about to run into someone and as they approach, or, or you see them in a story like, oh, I don't even know what, what, I, what would I even say to that person? And you're scrambling, you can't come up with anything, so you actually avoid them. Or, or you're, you're quick to pass by. And, and can I compel you to break that? practice why because you don't have nothing to say why because you love the opportunity to be an encourager think about that you don't need to be desperate for something to say if practiced and prepared to simply share with someone how they bless you what you see in them that's good what you see god doing in and through them you have something to say church be encouragers. Be known for that. Oh, here comes, here comes Timmy. Yeah, I love running into that guy. Right? And Christ in you is at work in that way. How impactful would Disciples Church family be to each other, to the world around us, if we would just simply be practiced and known for being encouragers or building others up with our words? How many things would you not say if not filled with real encouragement? How many posts would you not make on Facebook if not to that direction? Right? Go back and look at a month, three months of post. How much negativity are you sowing? Think about the way when you're with your friends, the way you talk, where does that go? What's the pace that's being set? What's the candor of your family in your home? How are you building people up? How is Christ at work in you making an impact on others? We're not to look like the world. We're to look crazy different. (laughs) How do people walk away from their time with you, even if it's just for a moment? Are they blessed? Are they lifted up? Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Is today happening? Yes? then let's encourage one another. Don't be the body of Christ that tries to endure the war that's raging around us without encouraging one another. The body is to be one of encouragement, of building each other up. It needs to be to us like breathing. You don't go through your day without lots of breathing, right? 
I know this because you're still here. We need to not go through our day without lots of encouraging to our spouses, to our children, to our neighbors, to each other. That we'd be known as a person at work that's wired that way, that's a blessing to be around. They see Jesus in and through us. Can I also give emphasis? Biblical encouragement is more than complimenting someone's shirt or telling them how good their homemade cookies are. Well, that's good and fine. Biblical encouragement is explicitly gospel-oriented. It's the kind of encouragement that's shared with people with hopes that it will lift their hearts towards the Lord. It points out evidences of grace in another's life to help them see how God's at work in them or using them. It points a person to God's promises and that they'd be assured that He's at work and, and that they're not out of control. Christian encouragement, here's the key, reorients the person to Christ, not to self. When your encouragement is only about the person, you're reoriented into the person who can't save them or sanctify them. Right? We need Christ to do that. Secular encouragement is incomplete. Draws the hearer only to oneself. We need to be better at gospel-centered encouragement to remind each other who we are in Christ the rock we stand on is Jesus. The hope we have is Jesus. This is a true encouragement. I love the song we sang earlier, a rendition of Psalm 23. Who our shepherd is and what he's doing in our lives and the hope we have to be with him forever. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, the my job, your, the job of your elders is to do this well. Paul instructs, gives instruction, we see this in Titus 1.9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Can I say, I want you to feel encouraged by your pastors, not because we're great at complimenting your hair or you know, your new shoes, and that's okay but to encourage you by sound doctrine. Are you encouraged by your pastors? By sound doctrine? We aim to do this well. May it continue to be so. I'm thankful for the ways that many of you are encouraging us, your pastors. It's Pastor Appreciation Month right now, and so this exercise is happening. You are writing us notes and sending us messages and gift cards the gift cards are great we use my family uses them throughout the year we kind of save them because there's those months where like we're kind of out of we're kind of tapped and i'm due to get my bride out for a date night or to get the kids out and we go to the little pile and is there something left yeah we got this family gave us this cool let's go and then sometimes you'll get a note from me six months later thanks for your pastor encouragement you're like hey that was a long time ago took you a while yeah we just used it and it's a blessing to us. Simple blessing. The notes, the encouragements. One of our brothers sent us elders a, a very, very well thought out, well written, time consuming, it was clear email the other day just to state biblical 
things about our role and what we're to do and bring encouragement to us. It was amazing. These make a real difference. And I'm thankful for your encouragement. I know we all are. It's funny because it's one of the things that you often say, many of you say, is like, Pastor, I know you hear this a lot, but I'm going to say it anyway. And the reality is, yeah, we just we don't hear it a lot. So thanks for sharing. There's something funny about how you assume that. There's a line of people outside my door waiting to say, like, yeah, go. No. <laughs> but God has designed us into the body that, that we would do this for each other, that we would build each other up, that we would encourage each other, reorient each other to Christ in these things. Are you intentionally encouraging one another? Building one another up? Do you literally make time? Do you schedule time, set aside time to write a note, send an email, shoot a text, make a call, travel to get your arm around a brother or sister? You should. Don't be like the heathens that are so consumed with your doing and your schedule for you that you miss out on this practice that we're to do regularly. I mean, think about the things that you commit to, that you prioritize doing every day. Simple things. You get dressed. Thank you for doing that. Right? You, 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 you brush your teeth. Again, thank you for doing that. That's a blessing to others. Right? We, 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 we prioritize these things. We do these things. We make time for them. We need to make time for this. Within our own homes with those that the Lord puts around us, and definitely with each other as the church. I love the words of Hebrews 10, 24-25. Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is saying, make this a priority. This is a priority you should not shirk. To stir one another up. The word consider here is better translated. Make time. Make time to do this. It is a priority in your day, in your week. Sunday corporate worship should be a priority in your week that's not easily thwarted. Maybe with an occasional vacation or staying home because you're sick because you want, you want to bless us. You encourage us when you stay home when you're sick, right? The opposite if you come and give it to everyone. But the, it's a priority. We don't neglect meeting together. The, the, the meet together in the English here is the Greek word for synagogue. It's, it's talking about a formal gathering of the congregation. And you need to see the depths here that, that we're... The difference between an aggregation and congregation. An aggregation is just a collection of individuals come together, listen to a speaker, come to an event, but, but there's no real depth of community, of belonging, of, of, of real life-on-life interaction. And, and so they're more like a bag of marbles that kind of just bounce off each other, but the congregation is meant to be more like a bag of grapes. And there's, there, there, there's a a togetherness, a unity, a, a vine. A, we're mushed together in a way that we belong. 
that's a part of this thing on Sunday that we're to do. Don't be guilty of slipping in, slipping out, and getting what you need and making it all about you. But take a moment. Find someone. Who are you praying for? Who are you encouraging? Who are you getting to know? That's the intention of what's being said here. This is why we're so desperate to have the kind of emergency moment of this arrival of this virus. We didn't know what it was going to do. That we were desperate to get back together to not usurp this command. And I remember many of you sharing how, how much you were impacted by the lack of this for those weeks we didn't meet. And, and literally how good it was to be back. That we're not out thinking God. God has said, do this. And we've, we've made the point, even if that means we get sick and die, we do what He commands us to do. He's in charge of our days, not us. We trust Him. We do what He says to do. The, your Sunday church is not like this take-or-leave-it thing. It's, it's an essential part of your walking through this valley of the shadow of death. The, the components of our togetherness, of our unity, of our encouragement of each other is this essential part of, of life in the body. Are you practicing this? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I think the reality with this one is, I think many of you are probably quick to agree. This is good. I want to do this more. I need to do this more. And just somehow you just don't do it more. And again, I just come back to say, you've got to make time. You have to prioritize the practice. Take the moment to see it through. Don't just have a thought or a prayer for someone. Shoot them a quick note. I did this for a, a brother I haven't seen in a long time. and we, it, was, it was a guy that I actually had some real contention with years ago. And so there's not really an ongoing relationship there outside of the fact that we both belong to Christ and um, part of different churches and the rest of it. And I just, I just sent him a note just to encourage him in the ways I see him prioritizing his life and honoring the Lord. And, and I just couldn't help but giggle later. Like, he's probably just scratching his head going, what's the motive behind this message from Josh? You know, like I'm trying to get something out of it. And there was no, no motive. I just wanted to see through the encouragement. I wanted to propel him in that direction he's going. That's it. And then we would, we would do that. And, and we would love each other in that way. Build each other up in that way. Make time. It's going to cost you something. It, this is not something you do for free. It's, it's real time. It's real money. It's real effort. But that in, therein lies kind of the beauty of, of the movement. Just saying thank you. Who, who can you say thank you to? You know, we just get better at doing that. that it may give grace to those who hear. Church, the purpose of our words as redeemed children of God is to speak gospel truth, to be witnesses, testifiers of His grace. Do your words point people to God in His amazing grace? 
They should. And as I say that, be careful not to only think about like people outside of those who you're really close to. I would say, how is that happening with those you're closest to in your marriage, with your children, with each other? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's an element of this that I, I think is helpful in all of my study. I wanted to add to this before we move to verse 30, and, and that is to be reminded of how sharp our words are. And therefore, they're going to be used for one or the other. That we'll wield our words in such a way that honors God and builds others up, sharpens them, or that cuts them. I love the Washington Irving quote. You've heard me say it a number of times. The tongue is the only tool that grows sharper with constant use. So what are you using with that sharpness? The words we say can and do change lives. They launch people to victory or they ruin them to failure. The, the famous proverb makes the point well. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. We are to sharpen each other, church, not to cut each other down. And I'll just say what a joy it is to be part of a body that wants to do this better, to honor our Lord, to bless each other and encourage each other in these ways. Let us be good at this, sharpening each other. Turn with me to verse 30, and let's hear Paul circle back to our identity in the Lord. And when we don't, do the things that honor him, the warning he brings. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I want to start with the second part of the verse and then we'll conclude with the first. Paul says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That means for those who have died to self, confessed your sin to the Holy God, you've trusted your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're born again. You're, you're saved. You're, you're made new. You're made spiritually alive. You're adopted into God's eternal family. You're redeemed from your sin and now victorious in Christ. You will stand with Christ on the day of redemption as He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. The fact that we're sealed in the Holy Spirit is truly good news. Paul has already spoken to this in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. To be clear, just to not assume, the Holy, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a part of Christ or a part of God the Father but is indeed a distinct person within the Holy Godhead. Our statement of faith as a church says it simply this way. God exists eternally as one God, three persons. God the Father, God the, Holy, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit come into our lives? 
We see a great explanation of this in Ezekiel 36, 27, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God's promise for all those he chooses to save to put the Holy Spirit in each of us, to do a mighty work in our lives. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, church, is not something we are to take lightly. It's what God has done in all believers, Old and New Testament. We must never play light with the work of the Holy Spirit. Both in Ephesians 1.13 and in our verse today, Ephesians 4.30, Paul says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you get why that's so important, that you're sealed. A few quick reminders. It confirms that we are actually true children of God. Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Church, our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we are marked as belonging to God. The the fruit of the Spirit is an evidence, a, a visual marker that displays that the Spirit of God dwells within us. It's the work of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Galatians 5 22 and 23. Paul says in Romans 8, 4, that those who are alive in Christ walk no longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Evidence of salvation, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as it bears itself, the Spirit's work. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. We need to learn to not ignore or dislike the work of the Spirit in our lives, church, but embrace it as a great thing, as a gift. That's why it's troubling when someone is struggling and they're confronted with sin and they decide to rebuke, to, to ignore it, to make excuse of it, even go so far to leave the church, to not be held accountable. It's troubling because they're pushing away the very work of the Spirit. The truths of God. If we live by the Spirit, we will also walk by the Spirit. Embracing the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to refine us, produce the fruit of the Spirit, is a major marker of our belonging to God. That we're not superficial in our faith, just plain religion, but we truly belong to Him. Our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we're secure in our salvation. And we see and savor the guarantee that God has us and will keep us, not lose any of us who truly belong to Him. The seal of the Holy Spirit. We who belong to Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. 
This is no small reminder, Christian. Let it be a, a, a blessing, a refreshing in your life and times to remember who you are, how God is at work in and through you as He ordains all these things and is going to usher in His eternal kingdom. Because we've been reborn, because we belong to Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we do not practice things that betray the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul says here, that grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me give a quick theological refresher, reminder here of what's not happening as it looks to be on the surface. God does not experience emotion. Scripture is clear. Historic confessions agree. Only modern thinking that wants to take topical verses and turn them into doctrine. That's not true. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are impassable in their divine nature. Meaning they are without emotion as we humans experience it. If God experienced emotion, God would be moody. This would be very bad. God would, would, would be changing. God would cease to be God, according to Holy Scripture. Scripture is clear. God is unchanging. James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It is a good thing that God is immovably stable. Perfect. 1 Samuel 15.29, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God does not change. God does not experience emotion. He's perfect and complete in His divine nature. So what does this mean then when we read a scripture like ours today that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit? It means that God has chosen to use a type of speech in scripture that helps us understand better the ways in which He works or what is holy or what is not, what is expected of us or not, what betrays Him and what doesn't. We must rightly understand that Scripture's use of words that seem to apply emotion to God are not literal. The theological word for this is anthropopathic language. Our Word of Truth Catechism, I hope all of you have one of those, has a great glossary of terms. You have great definition for anthropopathic, which is ascribing human feelings or passions to something that is not human. That's what's happening here. There's an ascribing of feelings or passions to God who is not human, does not experience these things. The description of God experiencing emotion is not the same experience that we have. What we have to stop doing is to say, this is the way I understand this or feel this, so then I apply that to God. 
We're guilty of thinking about God as if he are like a human, framing him up then to fit in our box, our way of thinking, our way of perceiving the world and how things work in creation. And I don't have time to go into this in all its depth, but if you're thinking about what about God the Son, what about Jesus when he takes on flesh? This is then, therefore, the necessity of our biblical understanding of what's called the hypostatic union, that Christ, after the incarnation, is fully man and fully God, that the flesh grew in knowledge, experienced much of the different things that we experience, but the divine nature of Christ had no variation, no experience of emotion. So we don't convolute and create something or overlap something that's not. We must repent of the ways that, we're try- that we try to make God fit into our box or reasoning, and we let Scripture teach us who He is and how He works. He's, he's blessing us to use terms like this because it's helping us understand what He's getting at when He's making a point. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's saying, do not do these things that I've just spoken of that are sinful and thereby do not honor God. That's the point being made here. Scripture speaks of how we betray the Holy Spirit with our life and words in in phrases like resisting the Spirit, Acts 7.51, quenching the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, or grieving the Spirit here in Ephesians 4.30. Paul's point is we grieve the Spirit when we live like pagans, as we read in chapter 4, 17 through 19. Think of the verses we've just studied. Don't live like pagans, verse 17 through 19. Don't lie, verse 25. We grieve the Spirit when we are sinfully angry, chapter 4, verse 26, 26 and 27. We grieve the Spirit when we steal, chapter 4, verse 28. When corrupting words come out of our mouths, chapter 4, verse 29. These things do not honor God. They are not righteous. These things stand against the Holy Spirit, who, who He is. They, they testify wrongly about the fact that we possess the Holy Spirit, that He's within us. Church, may we put off our old sinful ways. This is the emphasis of Paul throughout this passage. Our old longings, our own old desires, our sinful practices, and put on the holy ways of Christ that honor God and make much of His glory. This is Paul's point. Church, may we listen to the Spirit. Obey the commands of our Lord as given in Scripture instead of listening to our fleshly desires and the ways of the world. May we, may our words honor God and build each other up so that we point to the grace we've received in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? May every moment, every word, every action, may it matter. May we be serious about it. Making the most of these days that God has given us under the sun for His glory and for others' good. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given us to study Your Holy Word to mature and grow and, and, and be convicted by these truths, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our very lives to, to bring clarity, to, to take us to a place we haven't been. 
Lord, help us to make war with our pride that would cause us to be quick to make excuses, quick to make light of these things. No, let us be humbled to embrace the fullness of what you're teaching us and how you're longing to see us honor you with our lives, with our words. To make much of you and the grace that's been given to us. Grace you intend to save many more with. Make much of Christ. Lived without sin. Died in our place and rose victoriously from the grave. Now reigns on high the right hand of the Father. We thank you for the work of the Spirit, Lord. The blessing. Mature us in these ways. Take us forward. Let us not leave the way we came in. Let us not live today as we lived yesterday. Be honored. Be glorified. Oh, we rejoice in you. We have so much to celebrate in what you have done. You have freed us from our prison, from our shackled to sin. You've empowered us with the Holy Spirit. You've given us the body of Christ to to be blessed by and encouraged by and helped. God, let us go to work in these days for your namesake. Be worshipped. Be praised. In Jesus' name we pray.